We're in chapter 18, which is a significant chapter. One thing that makes it so significant is we could turn to the book of Isaiah and read it verbatim. It's one of these interesting chapters that's recorded in two places of the Scripture. But let us turn together to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the very Word of God. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. It is authoritative for your life and mine. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places, and broke down the pillars, and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him. Among the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from watchtower to fortified city. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozen, and in the city of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed His covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, three hundred talents of silver and thirty talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, 
and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust? That you have rebelled against me. Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we will trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now. Make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to, on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you must trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Moreover, it is without the Lord, it, it is without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it. The Lord said to me, go up against the land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharim, Hena, and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But the people were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, O Lord, that You would use this Word to bless us, to teach us, to encourage us, 
to convict us of our sin. We pray it would take root in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you remember the first time when things did not work out as you had planned? Or as you expected? Those of you that can think back to the time in which you first claimed the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You first expressed your faith in Christ, and perhaps you thought at that moment that everything was smooth sailing. Calm seas. Of course, that's oftentimes the evangelism that we hear. Believe in Jesus and your relationships will be great. Your finances will be great. Your health will be great. Your money will be great. There's only one problem with that. Those of you that have lived more than, say, a week with the Lord Jesus Christ, know that there are difficulties that come not only to unbelievers, but to believers as well. Sometimes it seems like more difficulties come to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps those of you who have known the Lord Jesus from your youth, you've grown up in a covenant household, you know this better than others. For you had a godly family, perhaps godly parents and grandparents, and yet still there are struggles in your marriage. There is sickness you can't get rid of. There's a job that you're afraid is going to go poof someday. For you, the Lord God Almighty has written 2 Kings 18. You've probably heard me say before that the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible are not inspired. But in this case, chapter 18 ends at a plot. It ends in a period piece. And chapter 19 takes up a different scene. And so there's a reason why chapter 18 ends on a bit of a sour note, on a bit of a frightening dark note. And rather than pretend it doesn't exist and rush quickly to the next page of chapter 19, I would invite you with me to look at chapter 18 and see how God works in the midst not only of miraculous deliverance, but dark providence. And so this morning I'd like us to see three things about faith in difficulties. First, we'll see faith's turnabout. A surprising turn of events that God brings about and that faith seizes hold of. Next, we will see faith's trouble as faith needs to be exercised in times of difficulty. And then lastly, we will see faith's trust as we see what The believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is to trust in, to place his faith in. Let's look then, beginning at chapter 18, verse 1, at faith's turnabout. The chapter begins with a new day. Now, it's almost hard to remember. It's been a couple of weeks since we looked at 2 Kings 16 and the Horrible king of Judah named Ahaz. That was the last time we took up the story of Judah. And there's an intervening chapter. And so I don't want you to forget that context. Judah had just had perhaps its worst king. The only example that could be worse is the usurper, the queen, Ataliah. Previous kings had gone from 
bad to worse. You remember there were kings that were a little bit better, but they were all a bit lukewarm. They didn't want to get all overexcited about their faith. There was always some drawback, some holdback that our author would give. Well, they did this, but they didn't remove the high places. They sinned, maybe not as bad as their fathers, but they still sinned. And now, we're at a point in which Ahaz has been on the throne, and it appears perhaps even that Judah will quickly follow Israel into exile. Have you ever felt this way about the church and its mission? Perhaps that experience has been very personal to you as you think about a church of your youth, or a place that you have gone, a body of believers that has declined either by giving up the great doctrines of the faith, or by giving up on the good news of the gospel so much so that they withered into nothing. Perhaps it happened at a bit more of a distance, and that you've been blessed by God to be in strong local churches, but you look out at the landscape and you see denomination after denomination that had stood firmly for the Word of God, falling into liberalism, secularism, paganism, outright idolatry. When you think about that, does your heart sink? Do you wonder what God will do in the church or in America? That would be what it would be like for a man of Judah, a woman or child of Judah in this day. But the new day has dawned, and it dawns beginning with a religious reform. Verse 3 comes like a lightning bolt to us. Those who are downcast, putting on sunglasses to hide our red eyes from crying. Verse 3 tells us of Hezekiah that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He takes down the high places for the very first time in hundreds of years. Someone finally has the guts and the piety to do what is right. And he wipes out the high places and he goes into the temple and he lays hands figuratively, upon the Asherah pole that his father had set up in the temple, and he rips it out at the joints and throws it into the garbage pile. Even more than that, he looks and he sees this sacred symbol, this symbol of the good old days, this symbol of all that was right and good in the days of Moses, and he sees that that tradition has been laid over with idolatry. He looks at that bronze servant that was once a tool of healing and has now become a tool of idolatry and he smashes it to bits because he says there is no God but the Lord and we will serve Him. Can you imagine the turnaround? You think it's a big deal today that a certain group of men and women have left Washington and another group of men and women have come in that budget sizes differentiate? that perhaps there's different priorities, this is a complete 180 from running toward death and destruction toward running toward life. This is the reform of the Lord in the person of Hezekiah. And he's not content to simply just break down what's bad. Notice what happens here in verse 6. 
He held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from Him, but He kept the commandments that the Lord had commanded. He wasn't just a cleaner-upper. He wasn't just a talker. He walked the walk of the godly man. It wasn't just religious reforms, though, that He enacted. Because, you see, we don't just live within the four walls of a church, do we? We can't all move to a monastery. We have to live out our lives in the world. And so Hezekiah takes his convictions and he puts them into action. And the way that that comes out is that he, in verse 7, rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. You see, he is clearly different than his father Ahaz. Do you remember what it was said of, of Ahaz? That he became the servant of Assyria. He loved Assyria. He loved Assyrian gods. He loved Assyrian cosmopolitan nature. He wanted to become their servant, their lackey. He was happy to be a henchman. Not so Hezekiah. He says, if we'll serve the Lord, we cannot serve Assyria. And he rebels against Assyria. He breaks away from Assyria. He is acting on his convictions. For he goes out and he subdues the Philistines. At this time, the Philistines would have been pro-Assyria, as well as some other states, the states of Edom and Ekron. And he went out and systematically said, if you are to be with Assyria, I will defeat you. This is a new day for Israel. It's also a unique day because Hezekiah is identified with King David himself. He did according to all that David, his father, had done. And the language here, if you go back and read through the stories of First and Second Samuel, you will see there are striking similarities. For example, only of David and Hezekiah is it said that the Lord was with them. The only two kings. Only of David and Hezekiah is it said that they prospered in war. That when they went out, the Lord prospered them. Only of David and Hezekiah was it said that they struck down and defeated the Philistines. You see, our author wants you to know that this is not only a slight uptick. This is David come again to the throne. This is not, after you've been watching the market for the last few months, a rise of 130 points. This is a 4,000 point rise. It seems like everything that has been lost has been brought back by the Lord and the king, Hezekiah. And there's no qualifications to his goodness. He did it according to all that David had done. And he is known singularly for his faith. No one trusted the Lord like Hezekiah. In the same way that later we will see, no one was so zealous to obey the law of Moses and the Lord like Josiah. I want you to remember this man's character. He is described in glowing terms, is he not? His faith is described as being unlike any king ever. He is the best. I want you to remember that. That is the summary of his life. But it's not every bit of his life. We could take encouragement from that as we go on. For next we will see faith's Trouble. 
Faith has seen a great turnabout. The good days are back. The days of worshiping the Lord. And now there's trouble on the horizon. In verses 9 through 12, there is a, a brief interlude. It's a repetition of the fall of Israel. Now, you may look at this and flip your Bible page and say, well, why is our author bothering? He just spent 41 verses in the last chapter talking about this. We haven't forgotten. Why bring it up again? There's a reason why the Holy Spirit brings this up again. It's not because there are a little bit of details you need about the exile of Israel. It's because the Lord wants you to understand that when it says that Hezekiah did all that the Lord commanded through his servant Moses, that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord more than any other that was before him, he did it in the middle of a nightmare. It was not his vacation or sabbatical. It was not when times were booming. It was not when everything was safe and there were no worries. He did this in the midst of the prowling bear of Assyria ripping apart the northern kingdom, not knowing perhaps if he would live another day. This is the context. This is the trouble that is afoot. And notice the difference between verse 5 and verse 12. Israel is cast into exile because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And they transgressed the covenant. And they did not do all that Moses commanded. Whereas Hezekiah trusted the Lord and did what the Lord had commanded. There is a contrast that is set up here. You know this. We value bravery more in the midst of danger than we do in the living room couch. Right? There's a, an apt phrase that we use, grace under pressure. It's one thing to nail the triple axle when it's one of 50 attempts in a practice. It's another thing when a hundred million people are watching you in the Olympics with the bulbs flashing and the pressure on and only one try. Right? That's what's going on here. The world is dangerous. And this is the context for Hezekiah. But the trouble that he has is not just the danger that's out there, because we see in thirteen that verse 13 that Sennacherib, the new king of Assyria, now comes against Judah. A little bit of a history lesson here to interlude. Between the fall of Israel and verse 13, there were a series of great rebellions, not of Judah and Israel, but of Babylon and of Media Persia, and of other large former empires that the Assyrians had conquered. And so the kings of Assyria, powerful kings, they said, we can't be bothered with these second-rate countries like Judah and Israel anymore. We've got to go take care of business. So they go off and fight a series of large-scale wars against Egypt, against Persia, against Media, against uh, Babylon. And actually, a couple of kings do this. And then Sennacherib comes to the throne and things are finally settled down. They have their foot firmly on the neck of Babylon again. And he looks back and he says, what's with this Hezekiah guy? He thinks he can rebel against me? Let's go take care of him, boys. And the army moves south. And so in 701 B.C., 
Judah is all alone. The king of Assyria comes down and he squashes Philistia. The Philistine ruler that had been placed in power by Hezekiah, he tosses and he puts an Assyrian on the throne. The, the king of Edom, who had been made to be pro-Judah, he kills and puts another Assyrian on the throne. And he begins to put the pressure, the vice is coming up on Hezekiah. But the second thing we see here is not just a dangerous world, but it's an unfair world, isn't it? Because if we think about it, if we stop and we think about verse 13, we want to point at it and ask the Holy Spirit, what are you doing? Don't you understand how things work? Verse 12, you said it. Israel was bad. They get squashed. Hezekiah is good. Why is he being attacked? He's obeying God. He's reforming. He wants to worship the God alone. Bad things aren't supposed to happen to people who do good things, who obey God, who are spectacular at obeying God. Isn't that how it works? You see, if we're honest with ourselves, in our heart of hearts, that is sometimes the message that Satan whispers to us. When we lose our job, it's not just... Got to find another form of income. Got to work hard. It's, I wonder if I have enough faith. I wonder if I'm obeying God enough. I wonder if there's some kind of secret sin in my life that God is punishing me for. You see, when difficulties come our way, we can think this isn't supposed to happen to me. This isn't supposed to happen to my church. This isn't supposed to happen to faithful denominations. This is supposed to happen to those bad people out there. And you see, our faith can come under attack because we see that it's unfair. We expect, if we're honest, happy endings, don't we? We're trained to that in fairy tales, in books, stories, movies. The guy's supposed to get the girl at the end. The hero's supposed to win. Right? And yet that's not what's happening here. You see, in real life, real biblical life, that's not how it happens all the time. You see, faith, our faith, powerful living faith, is not a shield from every disaster. If you haven't experienced that, I hate to disabuse you of that notion, beloved. But it's not. That's not the purpose of faith. To stiff arm everything bad that's out there in the world. It's not. Because you see, the Lord knows that if it was, we wouldn't treat faith as it is. A trust in the Lord, we would treat it like a magic rabbit's foot. That we would pull out and rub really hard when the Tao goes down. And rub really hard after a fight with our spouse. And rub really hard before we go to the doctor. But that's not what faith is about. Faith is about trusting in the Lord when it's up, when it's down. That's what this text is teaching us. There's something else about faith that we see in verse 14 that we need to hear as Christians. And that is that good, real, solid, biblical faith falls on its face at times.
I hate to disabuse you. A faithful believer is not perfect. A faithful believer does not always trust in God all the time perfectly. That part about nobody's perfect, it continues through conversion. This is one of the occasions where the bumper sticker is right, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. And that's what we see here with Hezekiah. Look at verse 14. This great giant of faith. Look at verse 5. No one had faith like him. No one before. No one after. How how he trusted God. He trusted God so much that he said to the king of Assyria, I've done wrong. Could you please possibly forgive me? And Can I give you whatever you ask for? What? Wait a minute. Did the scribe blot this out? He was supposed to tell the king of Assyria to go bug off because God is in charge and He'll smite you. And I'm not afraid at all. Bring me your best. Isn't that what giants of faith do? They're immovable. Not this giant of faith. He's a Bible person. But he's a real person. He's afraid. His knees are knocking. He doesn't know what to do. And he takes every bit of gold he can find. He literally rips the gold off the doors of the temple and puts it into a ball and sends it off. A gigantic ransom. 300 talents of silver. 30 talents of gold. Lest you belittle that, it is thought by archaeologists that at this time silver was more valuable in Israel than gold. The whole market thing. This is what he does. You see, the best faith, the best of us, can crumble at times. Because you see, faith is not faith in ourself or our own ability to exercise faith. Faith is faith in the One who is able. And so I encourage you this morning, if gnawing at the back of your throat and your head is that occasion in which you said, I just blew it. I can't believe that I fell for that sin. I can't believe that I didn't trust God. I'm a miserable, wretched Christian. I shouldn't even pray. I certainly shouldn't teach Bible school. I certainly shouldn't teach the kids. I certainly shouldn't be an elder. I could never be a deacon. Then you look at Satan in the face as he accuses you and you say, get from me. It's not about me. I mess up. It's about the One who never did. The Lord Jesus Christ. And this failure of faith becomes even worse. Because you see, after he bribes Assyria, Assyria behaves like, well, Assyria. And it breaks its promise. I know you're shocked at that. I mean, Assyria is, as one commentator put it, as I read this week, Assyria is wicked by any normal definition of the word. And he said, by that, I don't mean necessarily even a biblical standard. I mean, they were all about robbing, murdering, kidnapping, killing women and children, deporting people. Everything they did was horrible. That's how they ran their empire. They went from place to place and took anything of value, killed anything that was in their way, and then went on to the next place. And so they come back 
after Hezekiah stripped everything bare, Sennacherib sends his three big deputies. He sends the tartan. He sends the who is the field marshal, who is the leader of the army. And then he sends out to him the Rabsaris, who is the chief administrative official. And then he sends the Rabsheka, who is the chief official at court. And you may be wondering, why would he send the, the chief court official, the chief of staff, to go with the army? We're going to see in a minute. Because the chief of staff has a skill that the other two don't. He knows how to speak that language. And so he sends these three out. And we say to ourselves, you know, you're not playing fair, Assyria. <laughs> Come on. Help Hezekiah out here. He's, he's buckling under. He's having difficulty exercising his faith. He's down and you're kicking him when he's down. Has the world ever done that to you? Has the world come and kicked you when you're down? Just when you think that, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Then another wave of attack comes on you. And you think, oh, no, and another one. You see, that's how the world works. It looks for weaknesses of faith. It looks for when you're down and it tries to kick you harder. Don't be surprised. This should bother you. This is a trouble for faith. Hezekiah is facing an unbeatable enemy. And so what does he do? Well, the last thing that we see here is this chapter concludes from verse 19 on is we see faith's trust. We've seen faith's turnabout and we've seen its trouble. Now we see faith's trust. And the Rabshakeh comes up and he delivers this speech in the hearing not only of the three top officials, but of everybody on the wall. Imagine as if a conversation is happening here and all of the, the Judah soldiers are up in that balcony, listening, hearing every word that was said. And to give you an idea, an illustrative idea of what this is like, I firmly believe that this passage is the passage that Tolkien had in his mind in that scene of the return of the king before the gates of Moria. When the mouth of Sauron comes out, the mouth of Sauron is the Rabshakeh. They both are only known by their titles. They both mock. They both are just trying to destroy the will to resist the enemy. That's to give you an idea of the kind of tension that's going on right now. And he starts this interesting speech. And the first theme of his speech, he's, he's had speech lessons. He knows his border of when he can start and when he can stop. He knows how he's supposed to use gestures. Because this first speech, the theme is trust. Look down at your Bible, starting in verse 19. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Verse 20. In whom do you now trust? Verse 21. Behold, you are now trusting in Egypt. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord. Over and over again, six times he says, trust. And he starts with a question. On what do you raise this trust of yours? He's following an old tactic. 
the tactic of asking a question that's, that's purposed to sow doubt. It's the same tactic that the serpent used in the garden. Did God really say? Who are you really trusting in? Is he really trustworthy? Because I'm not sure. And then he lays it on. Oh yeah, you trust in him. I'll tell you what. We'll give you 2,000 horses. You probably don't have 2,000 people to know how to ride. We'll give them to you. And we'll still wipe you out. How puny you are. Come on. And then he says something that really cuts to the quick. He says, oh, you're trusting in that reed. The Pharaoh of Egypt. <laughs> you know, we just beat him about a decade ago. And while we're talking right now, my master is wiping him out over a little bit west of here. At a town called Elka. Yeah, you're going to trust in him. Now, what makes that so interesting is when you have opportunity this afternoon, go home and read the book of Isaiah, chapters 22 to 31. And you will see Isaiah going on and on and on and on again saying, don't trust Egypt, trust God. You're trusting in Egypt, trust God. And in chapter 22, verses 8 through 11, he says, listen, you've rebuilt this wall. You've got all these weapons. You've laid out this water. You're trusting in that. Don't trust in that. Trust in God. Do you see the irony here? The wicked pagan Rabshakeh knows better than the king of Israel, Judah. He knows what Isaiah has been saying. You can't trust Egypt. He's seen through the ruse. You see, that's what happens when we trust in things other than the Lord. People outside of us, outside of the family of God, can look over and say, you know, that isn't going to cut it. I don't know what you're thinking, but that's not a worthy object of trust. There's great irony here. You see, the Rabshakeh has understood something that Judah needs to understand, and that is that actions should not be a substitute for faith. They are to be an expression of faith. You place your trust in the Lord, and then you act accordingly. You don't do all sorts of things and keep God as a backstop. And the Rebshekah knows this. He's challenging their faith. Challenging them to trust. And then he asks a second question in verse 26. He says, who will deliver you? Over and over again. Seven times he uses this verb, deliver. Who is going to deliver you? He says, you don't know what you're going to do. You have no idea. He's not going to, verse 29, deliver you out of my hand. Don't say the Lord will surely deliver us. This isn't going to happen. And he tries to intimidate them. He sees Hezekiah's weakness. And four times he says, don't trust Hezekiah. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. Don't believe Hezekiah. He wants you to trust the Lord. He's a fool. Come be with me. And he sets up this division. He looks up at the soldiers and he says, no, come on, don't trust this crazy man and this little town god. Come out, 
have peace with me. And I'll take you to another... Well, you'll have to leave the country, but there'll be a beautiful vineyard and lots of food, and you'll be so happy. And we're standing back here going, yeah, right. These are the same people that did what they did to Israel? You see, he's trying to divide them. And he lays it on. He says, I'm going to speak in the language that people can hear because I want them to know that in about a week and a half, they're going to be eating their own waste because I'm going to cut this town off and they better get while the getting is good. And he piles it on and he piles it on and then he does something that the world does. In verse 35, he makes a gigantic mistake. And it's the opportunity for faith. He says in verse 34, who delivered this country and that country and the other country? He's whipping off historical examples. Where are those people now? They're destroyed. Their God helped them? No way. Where are those people? They're destroyed. Their God helped them? No. And then in verse 35, he says, who delivered them that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem? You see what he's doing there? He says, you know, this Lord, this Jehovah, this Yahweh, He's just like that other town's God. They couldn't deliver them. He won't deliver you. He's minor. He's puny. After all, if He was a real big God, you guys would be a decent country. you got one little town. We're besieging you. Look at the ridiculous state you're in. Your God's got to be a ridiculous God. He equates the visible greatness of the people of God with God's greatness. And it's a colossal blunder that we'll see next week he's going to pay dearly for. And the opportunity there is for you to look at the same passage and not make the same mistake. Do not equate the greatness of God or the trustworthiness of God by how many people are sitting in these pews. Or how big the church in America is. Or how much political power we have. God's greatness is independent of the size and power of His people. And as soon as you get past that, all ability to think that God isn't worthy of trust or God can't deliver because I'm so small, my church is so small, my problems are so small, they go away. Because God becomes huge. Do you see the blessing that the Rabshakeh has given you? Trust the Lord. What does this mean? In very brief conclusion, one thought to think about. What chapter 18 tells you, as it ends on a dark, cloudy note, with no happy ending yet in view, is do not wait for things to get better before you trust the Lord. That is our tendency and our temptation, is it not? Do not wait for things to get better before you trust God. Trust Him in the darkness. Trust Him in the darkness of the night of your soul, of your life. That is faith. And this same giant of faith who fell flat on his face, we will see has picked himself up. No, rather, God himself has picked up Hezekiah because he has told his men, don't answer a word. Just go out there and hear what he's got to say and come back, for we will trust God and he will deliver. We're going to see that story next week.
It's a wonderful story. But don't forget this story. This story is before you have hindsight. This story is when you're in the midst of present difficulty. Praise the Lord for 2 Kings 18, even before you get to 19. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word that You have given to us through Your servant. And we pray, O Lord, that You would give us the faith that we need, that You would strengthen our faith, that we would trust in You and in You alone. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us stand together and encourage our faith as we dwell upon the work that the Lord has done throughout the history of the church by singing together for all the saints.